Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original. I'm James O'Hagan, and from LGBT Ireland, this is Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original podcast. You can find out more information about LGBT Ireland and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTQ community on our website, lgbt.ie. In this episode, I'm speaking with Louise, a 60-year-old transgender woman originally from Northern Ireland, but based in Dublin since the early 2000s, when she began her transition. Louise is very well known in the LGBTQ community. She was the first transgender person to use the Employment Equality Act against an employer on the grounds of gender discrimination. Her victory in this case was an important influence on the drafting of the 2015 Gender Recognition Act. Ahead of chatting to her, having read articles she had written during her time as a board member of the Transgender Equality Network of Ireland, and seeing the photographs of her looking serious at events and at podiums alongside other well-known trans activists, I made assumptions that she would be sincere and businesslike. In speaking to her, I quickly realised that I couldn't have been more wrong. She has a love of music, specifically country music, and had been a DJ at a pirate radio station when she first moved to Dublin. In fact, during the first lockdown, she had started a new radio show and said that it gets her up in the morning and has given her a great focus, particularly chatting with her show's listeners on Facebook and by email. While she's been in Dublin for over 20 years, she hasn't lost a relaxed and informal character people from the north are known for. And though she's been through an enormous amount in her life, she takes everything in her stride and with good humour. Apologising for a bit of a cough as we recorded, she let me know that herself and her partner had both been diagnosed with COVID-19 and were still feeling the after effects. When I asked if this diagnosis had worried her, she nonchalantly said, if it killed us, it killed us. If we survived it, we survived it. Sure, what else can you do? I started by asking Louise about when she realised that she was developing differently to the boys with whom she was growing up. It was very early on. I was uh, around seven at the time, seven, eight. And I could never put a finger on it. I could never describe how I felt, but I never interacted with males my own age. I never felt comfortable around the playing the football and all the stuff that was going that was in their head. That didn't sit with me. But I had no language to describe it. I, I, I didn't know. And then my father used to buy the news of the world and there was an article on April Ashley when I was about sixteen. Totally derogatory. And if you know what she was like, she was one of the first uh, transgender people to come out publicly in the UK. And when I read that article I thought, oh my God, I don't want to be like that. To be treated like that, I don't want to be like that. But over the years, as time went on, and the fact that I felt different, and eventually I had to do something about it. And if I hadn't done something about it, I probably wouldn't be here now. As you were growing up, you you sort of followed the traditional path of you got married and and you had children. Yeah. And that parallel, like, did you repress the the feelings, or did you kind of push the feelings down, or were you aware of it, and did you kind of sort of acknowledge it to an extent during that phase of of your your life? I. Again, I knew there was something even at that stage that wasn't right. I suppose I was conforming to what my parents wanted. Some of my friends had got married at that stage and I didn't have that many male friends, but I had one very good male friend who got married and I thought, well, I suppose it's about time I did that too. And I never really, look at that stage, I was 26. At that stage, 
do you really know who you are or anything about yourself? I mean, I was basically a child. In those days, the environment, I came from a from a, an agriculture farming background and it was very, it was a very naive, a very um, innocent environment compared to today. And a lot of the stuff nobody discussed. I can remember a girl who became pregnant, lived a neighbour of mine, and it, it was absolutely shocking because she wasn't married and all of this sort of stuff. It was a totally different environment. And I really, really, really thought about it. I, I, I got married and, and, and I realised after I got married, look, there's something not quite right here, but I just couldn't put a handle on it, you know? The strange thing, though, is is that I knew people that were gay, but it was never discussed. Um, I knew I knew an intersex woman, and she was just accepted as a part of the environment. She worked in one of the local mills beside us, and now you didn't argue with her because she was six foot two and she had just like a foot wide. You know, you didn't really argue with her, but everybody accepted her as she was. And I knew a couple of gay people. Uh, one of them was a teacher, and nobody batted an eyelid. It was never discussed. It was never talked about. There was never any kind of association or there was never any kind of anything bad about it. It was just, oh, they're gay, that's it. And you went on ahead. You never thought any more about it, you know? Yeah. Do you think it was part, part then kind of gay people could exist in their communities as long as they weren't, you know, making a show of it or weren't kind of like pushing it in exactly. people's faces? Exactly. From from what I can just, just from chatting to you and from reading a, a few of the, the articles that you've, you've had published over the years, I suppose you're coming out was sort of a, a process rather than sort of a statement of, you know, this is who I am now. This is how I'm going to be. And you sort of, as the time arose for different stages of that journey, you took the step in work or in telling. How did you plan that journey and then to start the process of, of transition? Well, the, the important thing I had to do, uh, and I'd seen people coming out uh, piecemeal, uh, one of the decisions I decided to make was to tell everybody all at once, within 24 hours, what the story was. Because I'd seen other people where the message had come out drib drab and that had allowed a lot of negativity to creep in yeah. so I didn't particularly want to do that so I just came out now the only person I didn't tell was a cousin who's no longer with us unfortunately she was quite elderly she reared me she was a surrogate mother big sister all rolled into one and uh, I told her and she was 76 at the time this was 10 years ago 11 years ago and she looked at me and she said look you're living your life the way you want you're not doing anybody any harm so I'm happy you're, you're, you're ha- as long as you're happy I'm happy so that was a relief to me because she was the very last person. And you had put off coming out to her at the same time you came out to everyone else because you were worried about her reaction. Exactly, exactly. Uh, she lived at home, uh, not that far from where we, where I was born. And that uh, recognition and that acceptance was very heartwarming for me because I never expected that. I thought she, being old-fashioned, would would go the opposite way, but she actually didn't. Your ex-wife and, and children, how did they feel about it? They, uh, unfortunately... Um, were told, uh, my ex was told by somebody else and it was difficult and it still is difficult. I mean, we're de- separated now 24 years and it was very difficult and it was very difficult for my kids as well. I think had we separated when I was a lot younger uh, and they were a lot younger, I think they would have accepted better because I know quite a few trans women who have children and they sort that all out when the children were under 10 and I think that would have been a big advantage but unfortunately mine were a lot older than that and I'm in touch with one of them now and I talk to him quite regularly by email uh, the other one I don't talk to at all um, and that's just an acceptance of, of, of the way things are you know I can't do anything about it I still talk to the, the youngest one and uh, oh, look they talk to me and uh, by email but uh, someday I someday 
I hope to sit down with him. Now, I did meet the both of them. My mother, she died, she passed away in, in 2001. I had to get the grave headstone and uh, I had the papers. So my youngest boy was living in the North at the time. And he said, look, if I get the papers, he said, I'll do it. And I said, well, look, I'll sort out the money for it. And I met the both of them in the Clarence Hotel one day here in Dublin, one Sunday evening. And they were fine. They just said, they did more or less, they said the same as my cousin. They said, look, as long as you're happy, we're happy. But at the same time, I think there was a lot of other things going on there around the divorce and, and that sort of thing, which they felt uncomfortable with. I feel very sorry for you. I think it's unfair that people are expected to not be allowed to be themselves in order to maintain relationships. But at the same time, I understand that when children are in that sort of in their earlier stage or when they're growing up, they react in in ways. It's a sad part of what I would imagine is a a reasonably frequent part of the transgender journey is is that sort of having to to make your peace with the fact that you're going to need to give space to some people. It's it's a sad part of the the journey as well, and one which I think needs to be respected a bit. A bit more. The problem is, though, you can never guarantee what way people are going to react. Um, I had one chap, I used to do a bit of sort of, uh, people used to talk to me about the journey it was a long time ago. And one chap said to me one day, uh, he said, do you mind if I talk to you? And I said, no, go on ahead. And he said, I am transgender. He said, I have been married for 10 years. I've got two children. And he said, I'm struggling with it. And I said, well, what's more important for you, your family or being transgender? And without hesitation, he said, well, my family, my two children and my wife. I said, well, there's your choice made. You can't do anything about that. And then I met another man and he he was elderly and he said the same thing. And I said, well, how would your wife feel about it? And he said to me, well, he said, I nursed my wife through cancer. And he said, if I told my wife, it would kill her. And I said, well, there you, there, there, there's your answer. You know, that's exactly what, what happened. That's really awful to hear. Um, there really is so much sacrificed with, with either choice, because even within the, the life they may have built not having come out. There will be parts that they love and, and a fear of, of losing that, particularly having grown up in, in such a closed society, would feel so very real. For yourself, you moved to Dublin and that's where you started living openly as as Louise, as yourself. What was that like? Um, it was it was interesting. It was a lot of fun. I first I arrived in July of two thousand, and I went to a club called the Gemini Club, run by a lovely woman called Natalie Conroy. And I met quite a few people there. I met the current chair of Tenny there, who's a, been a great friend ever since. So I I, I kind of I, I kind of went out, and I, I, in a sense, what I tried to do was go out and enjoy myself, and that did away with. The, the, the tension and the pain of the, the position I was in. Um, and I tried to do that every weekend to try and get a, a release mm-hmm. away from the everyday humdrum. It took me till about 2006 till 2005 till I actually made moves, actually physically transition through the workplace and, and, and everything else. And I had a lot of figuring out to do over that period of time. I used to go out at the weekends in female mode and then male mode the rest of the time. Quite a difficult thing to do at the time. We were living in Clontarf uh, and I had a lady staying with us who was very, very homophobic, transphobic. And I knew that I couldn't walk into the room as Louise. So I had to sneak out on a Friday night when she was in the other room, in the front room watching television. But I couldn't let her see me in that guise at all. And it was very, very difficult to do. She thankfully only stayed with us for about nine months. Having to keep 
jumping back to to an identity which wasn't authentic to who you are uh, just to please other people whether it's the, the woman you mentioned that you were living with or or your employers must have just been extremely difficult to do and to try and and, and maintain um this was at, at the same time you you were building this new community for yourself you you mentioned already that you'd become good friends with with, with uh, some of the people who were involved with tenny and, and that you were starting to be part of the 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 LGBT community. When did I suppose? When did you start to feel like you belonged to us? I mean, uh, the first pride I went properly on was in two thousand six, and walking down the street in two thousand six was an enormous feeling of how can I put it? Authenticity of pride of being who. I was always meant to be. And yeah. that walking down the street of the main street on the capital of my own city. I mean, I count Dublin as my city. And it was overwhelming in some ways. It was very emotional and I really enjoyed it. And, and following on from that, the year that uh, Lydia Foy was uh, Grand Marshal, and I was asked to chaperone Lydia that day in the, in, the, in the carriage at the front. And that was just unbelievable. We went into the Arlington Hotel at the back of the front lounge to do an interview on Talk and... Uh, I'd had dinner with Lydia in Chow Bella Roma around the corner, the Italian restaurant. Yeah. And in the time we went out to Chow Bella Roma and walked around through the, at the back of the old front lounge, Street 66, it took us half an hour to get through the crowds with people shaking her hands. Well done, Lydia. Can I take a selfie with you? All this sort of stuff. And that particular day was one of the most memorable days and will always be a memorable day in my life. It was incredible. That does sound just fantastic. And God, I'm looking forward to when we can have um, another pride like that again. (laughs) You mentioned Lydia Foy there, of course, is is, uh, very well known for for leading the the legal action challenging um, gender recognition in in Ireland uh, in the, the 90s leading up to the Recognition Act in, in 2015. But I suppose you yourself were involved in, in quite a significant legal challenge around employment equality. So in 2011, you filed a complaint against your employer uh, on the grounds of discrimination leading to, to a constructive dismissal after you had transitioned. Um, and the case was successful and uh, sort of marked a historic step for more LGBT inclusion in the workplace. I can't imagine the courage that it would take to decide that you were going to do that, to put yourself in that position of being just so exposed? I had no intention of taking any cases or anything like that. But the manager where I was was very derogatory. And the general manager, owner, director said to me, the manager will be fine. His brother is gay. He'll understand. But in fact, he didn't understand. And that was the issue. So while I was there in male mode, Everybody was happy. But then whenever I walked in uh, in female mode, which I'd already prepared them for and they were comfortable with it, supposedly, then it got to a stage where uh, I felt very uncomfortable the way I was being treated, the way I was being spoken to. And eventually I just got angry. And I said, look, on a personal level, I got angry with the two people because I got on very well with them as a, as a boss, if you like. And once I walked in as Louise, then it was a totally different story. It, it's, a, it's a form of bullying. I mean, that's what I was subjected to in the workplace. So I, I, I felt, you know, I felt angry. I left the work in August, the end of July. I was told to leave, in fact, and uh, I felt very annoyed with it. And I thought about it for three or four months. And then in January uh, of 2008, I thought, well, look, I'm going to do this now. But I never thought of going public with it. Uh, people say that's a brave thing to do. I never saw it as being brave. I just saw something that 
was wrong. And I didn't personally give a damn about me, uh, but that's what I'm like. If I see something that's that's not right, I'll fix it if I can, or I'll create a situation where somebody else can fix it. And that's where I felt, I'm not not accepting this end of. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, look, if I was 25, I might not have taken that decision. I might have wanted to blend into the woodwork and get on my life, nobody knowing anything about me. But I thought, well, look, you know, I'm at that stage of life. I'm not taking any prisoners now. I don't care. <laughs> and that's basically where I was coming from, you know. I mean, that, that's that's exactly, I think, where a, a lot of people arrive at a place, particularly after they've been ostracized or marginalized or pushed out or being sort of pushed down um, for a lot, for lots of, 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 for a long time in their life. You get to a place, you're like, no, there's, there's there's fairness and there's unfairness yeah. and I'm sick of having to always put up with being treated unfairly. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and I, I got to that stage and it was because of the anger. I, I never really looked at the implications, the, the legal implications of the case. That never really hit me to the Equality Authority had it as their main lead story in their annual report the year after on that particular year. I, I, that never struck me as being as being the issue. I never set out to change the law or anything like that. It happened, but it was more because I was just so, on a personal level, so upset and angry at the two people I worked with. That is very understandable understandable because you had you had literally given them like a date you said look from from this day I will be presenting as Louise in the office and this was to give them that time to prepare and then for not to be respected it would be very it would make you furious because you would feel like I have gone out of my way yeah. you know we're we've got a good relationship what why can't you just you know respect me for who I am I I, I had spoken to the managing director in 2006 in November and I said Look, I showed him a photograph on the PC in the, in the office. And I said, do you know who that is? And he looked at it. He said, no. I said, that's me. And his jaw dropped. <laughs> and I said, look, I'm transgender. I want to transition. But I said, I don't think the workplace here will accept me. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. He said, um, he said, we'll accept you. Okay. And talk to us about what you want to do. And they agreed all this. But then when I walked into the office, it was a totally different story. And in the end, I had to go out to meet clients uh, in my male persona, come back, go back home, change, come back into the office. And this is the way I had to deal with it. Then eventually he turned around to me and he said, listen, there's an atmosphere in the office. I want you to uh, work from home. But b- slightly before that, I had a meeting with the manager and he said to me, uh, this is not working. And he said, what do you mean it's not working? He said, it's not working. We want you to go back to mail mode. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. I've got here. I've got to this point. If you knew what it took to get me to this point, I'm not going back. And then he got more and more difficult with me and then eventually uh, that was solved by the fact that I was asked to work from home and that was meant to be for a month to move to another office and uh, I worked from home right through until uh, July but it was very difficult because when you're in a transport office you have all the guys coming in with their CVs and stuff looking for jobs and they're talking about what's happening out there in the real world and you very often get quite a lot of good leads from that. We were supplying drivers on contract to different large corporations and stuff like that and and I was doing quite well at it. I mean, I did 60% of the turnover of the company in the year I was at it. And I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And I'd still be at it if, if things hadn't changed. And then I was asked to work from home. And then eventually I asked, could I come back to the office? No. Yet there was a desk and everything in the office. And at the end, uh, the MD said, look, I think you should get yourself another job. What 
while everyone's experience is different and everyone's journey through life is unique, there are a common set of issues which we all face at different times or which impact certain groups of people at different times in their lives. I chatted with clinical psychologist and head of the Department of Psychology at St. Vincent's University Hospital, Dr. Paul Dalton, about a few of these more common issues, how they affect people, where they have come from and what we can do to confront them. When discussing the experience of the trans community, gender dysphoria is a term which is often used to describe a feeling of discomfort or distress that may occur in people whose gender identity differs from their sex assigned at birth. Paul spoke to me about how some people experience this feeling and the importance of not medicalising the transgender experience. So, so the gender dysphoria, just it's not a term I like at all. And one that's used in the diagnostic and statistical manual of, of mental disorders. So look, there's lots of issues there we could have. I think of it more as I am not at home with the sex characteristics that I find myself with. I'm ill at ease. This isn't an expression of my internal, emotional, psychological state. So that kind of that kind of conflict between between appearance in some ways and an internal world and an internal experience. And that is very upsetting for some people, but important to say not all. It may not be um, an issue for some transgendered people at all, but one that needs to be handled very carefully very sensitively, but most importantly, need not to be medicalized, need not to be pathologized, because that can very easily go down or into the, the, the rabbit hole of what's wrong with me. There, there's something wrong with me. No, this is an experience that many people will have. And sometimes, I'm not into labels, but sometimes even having language around that can be helpful to say, oh, that's what this is. This is a dysphoria. It must have been such an incredibly challenging period to, to go through for, for yourself. But coming out the other side of it, I suppose, did it make you feel more validated as a, as a member of our society that it was successful? It did. It very much did, because there are so many transgender people in this country. And, you know, you encourage them, you, you, you help them to live their lives authentically. And they go on and they, 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 they get jobs they get education they get they pay their taxes like everybody else and i think that is one of the things that this country will benefit from in the longer term there's an awful lot of the people who up to 15 20 years ago they were in the closet they weren't productive a lot of them couldn't work a few of my friends were chased out of their schools two of them would, were in three different schools uh one of them was working as a, an escort uh in the back streets and that's how they had to work because the family rejected them the schools rejected them so not only did they have a poor education, they had no means of living. They couldn't they couldn't earn a living. And it's great to see transgender people now doing the things, going to college, being accepted, getting their degrees and, and doing whatever else they want, even if they don't want to do that. And and that is for society something that's extremely important. Because otherwise you're losing a pool of talent that is gone forever. If you look at the large corporates that are in Ireland at the moment, 
the Googles, the PayPals and all the rest of them, eBay, they all embrace LGBT. They all know that people who are allowed to be themselves in the workplace environment are better producers and the bottom line shows that. And some very, very talented people in those organisations who are gay and those organisations are so much the better for it. One of the the things which thankfully we've seen, um, I think even now in the last number of weeks or months, the ICGP, the Irish College of General Practitioners, have, have launched their transgender guidelines. And I think we're seeing within healthcare, there is more of a focus on providing a service that's inclusive of trans people and of trans needs. You said in, in, in an article around the time of the case with the Equality Tribunal that you were concerned about your healthcare needs as you were going to be to, to be getting older. I think you, you were in your 50s yeah. at, the, at the time. I suppose, how have you seen, obviously, engaging with the, the Irish healthcare system? How have you found that experience as you've been you've been getting older? Actually, what little experience I've had of it, I found there to be absolutely no problem whatsoever. My GP is ex-Jaring Cross. Initially, now she's gone off to have a family, but her two GPs that she works with in the practice are absolutely brilliant. I've had to go for x-rays there, um, for bone density x-rays and things like that. In James's Hospital, they, they were brilliant again. I got my eye done there, um, cataract my eye. I got it done and uh, the people were brilliant. There was no issue with them at all. So I, I, I don't think they care what you are, to be honest. I think they just treat you as a person who needs medical intervention of some sort. I think our nurses are so actually so brilliant. I don't think they actually see where the issue is or anything else around it, in my experience of it. Um, and I, I, again, that has moved enormously from 10 or 12 years ago. Um, I think there would have been an issue at that. But in, in fairness, um, Vanessa Lacey, the, the uh, education manager with Tenney, has done a, an absolutely enormous job uh, around the HSE and, and, and nursing and, and all of that. It seems like you've been quite lucky in that the treatment you've received, I suppose, with your, your GP, having worked at the Charing Cross Gender Identity Clinic in the UK and then in your interactions with St. James's where they've got LGBT inclusivity measures and and an education programme in place there means that, I suppose, the staff that, that you've interacted with would have had an awareness or a grounding in how to interact with LGBT patients. How important important, would you say, education is for healthcare staff, just as well as in ensuring that LGBT people in their care don't feel unintentionally judged or discriminated against? It's very important, I think. It's something I thought a bit about. And I'm kind of, I don't know how to actually put this to you, but if you're in the situation that I'm in, where I go into a hospital and present as Louise Hannon, and then a nurse comes around your bed, puts the curtains up or whatever, and then they actually see you with no makeup and your hair all over the place and, you know, a bit of growth and stuff. It, it's, a quite, it's, quite, it's quite an incongruous situation where someone is sitting there or lying there in the bed and their name is female. And yet they have maybe a two days growth of beard or something, you know, um, which people don't actually realize. And I think that the first time I saw a transgender woman uh, with a beard was actually in Miara. It was actually in Mas Palomas. We went out one night and uh, one of the, the transgender performers um, hadn't shaved that day and you could see the black hair. And I thought, you know, that's the first time it struck me 
that, you know, not everybody can have facial hair removal and get all the removal of the hair done. I mean, in my case, I, I did laser treatment away back in 2008 and I spent 1,200 euro on it at that stage. And then I ran out of money with a crash because I ended up out of work. So my hair growth now is kind of white, gray, a little bit of uh, a little bit of brownish. So that will happen if I'm lying in the hospital bed over, over a couple of days or something like that. So that is striking me as being a bit odd that I'll have to lie there in the bed. They will have to call me Louise. And yet I'm sitting with two days growth. I laugh about that to myself. How are they going to deal with that one? You know, but I actually just think the nurses will just get on with things, you know, and the doctors too. It's just... It's it's just the way they do things. It's they're they're caring people. I have a lot of nurse friends, and they're the most beautiful people and tremendously good to their, to their patients. patients. Yeah, from any interaction I had, either working with or engaging with the health service, they have people who go into that, go into it because they want to help. I used to know a nurse very well, and she had to deal with people who were in, as she said at the time, they're they're in a situation where it's the worst day of their lives, and you have to be able to deal with that and be confident in what you're doing with them. That understanding that the people you are dealing with are extremely vulnerable and need to be treated with great care exactly where they are is so important for for healthcare professionals and it's a responsibility that they do take extremely seriously. When I was on the Tenney Committee in 2007 we got a grant from the Equality Authority and we sent out a leaflet explaining the transgender issues to two and a half thousand GPs. And I can remember at the time, all bar about six, (laughs) one of them uh, sent a letter back in and said, don't send me this rubbish ever again. But that was six, I think I've seen less than six actually, out of 2,500 or 2,200, I think it was. Um, So you see, the the other issue too was in those days, there was actually no proper people uh, with the knowledge to counsel anyone on the mental issues around being transgender. And we found that there was a lot of misinformation that when you went to a counsellor, they were trying to mould you into something which came from a from their own religious background. And we found that an awful lot of the, uh, the early counsellors that people went to, they were actually doing damage. So it was very lucky that, that, that I found a good, a good counsellor here in Dublin, but I know a lot of counsellors down uh, outside Dublin uh, would not have been anything like as good, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely, because I, I think you, you, you've sort of hit the nail on the head there, which is there is a, it, there has been in the past a feeling of we've got to make this person normal again rather than we need to try and... Yeah help this person figure out who they are and how they can be themselves and how they can be themselves in the most authentic way possible. And that's changed in, thankfully, but definitely has been a, a, an issue for quite a long time. Like reflecting on your trans identity as you, you age, where are you now? It seems like you're very much at peace with this. Yes, I am. Um, I'm very relaxed now. Um, it's only, being trans is only a part of who I am. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's what I that's what I'd be saying. Do you have concerns that your identity won't be respected as you age? You know, that uh, I, as I say, I've stepped away back from it now. I'm quite comfortable in my own space um, and I don't I hate to see anybody being bullied or, or whatever. But uh, I'll give you one story. And when I was with Pride, um, I was on the board of Pride and we agreed that 
I was a community development director, that we would find out how the older generation reacted to Pride that particular year. I think it was about 2008. And I went down to Outhouse to meet the old and golden group. And I went in and I sat in with them and we we had a bit of a discussion. And there was one man, he would have been, oh, he could have been 70. And I started to talk to him and he said, I said, where do you live? He said, I live in a village in the Midlands. He said, I was born and reared there. And he said, I come up to Dublin to socialise. And I said, why do you travel all the way up to Dublin to do that? He says, because nobody in the village knows I'm gay. And that shocked me because how can you live in a village all your life and not be able to tell the people, uh, tell your friends and relatives that you're gay? He couldn't do that. Couldn't do that. And I I thought that was a terrible indictment of our society that, that somebody of that age had lived all their life and they couldn't be authentic. That is really heartbreaking. And unfortunately, through the, the work I would do with the older members of the, the LGBT community, I would see that quite frequently they don't feel comfortable being out in, in their own localities and within their own communities. Uh, and often like that, that individual had the ability to come to Dublin to socialise with uh, other LGBT people. But for a lot of people, that is just not something that's possible to do. Before we finish up, I wanted to ask, I suppose, um, how can mainstream community and, and, and the LGBT community better support older trans people, in your view? I actually think it's about tolerance. I think it's about live and let live. I think when someone is living their life the way they feel authentic, may not be authentic to the way you look at it, but if they're authentic and they feel they're authentic, well, then let them live their lives. They're not doing anybody any harm. I have a great difficulty with these people who are very anti-gay, anti-trans. What's their issue? We're human beings. We're brothers, sisters, fathers, uncles, aunts, all the rest of it. Why be so vociferous against a small minority It's never going to do you any harm. It's never going to be a danger to you. So where is the issue with it? I I, I just don't see it at all. Um, And I think just being tolerant allow people to live their own lives the way we allow everybody else. I mean, the gay community had to ask the heterosexual community to be legitimate, if you like, with marriage equality. Well, I mean, why should the trans community have to ask uh, the wider population just to basically exist. As my cousin said, my late cousin, you're not doing anybody any harm. You're living your life the way you want. As long as you're happy, I'm happy. That's the attitude society in general should have. Is there any way, particularly for older trans people, you, you see that the gay community could could improve the way it either treats or includes um, includes people? Well, the, the, there are a few people and they're a very small minority in the LGB community who would be not the most friendly towards the trans, towards the T. I've seen that over the years. Um, I went into the panty bar one day, <clears throat> I suppose not that long after the panty bar had, had, had opened, and I was walking up the bar and this guy came out from the window and he caught me by the hair and he pulled me around. And... I looked at him and I said, what are you trying to do? He said, I want to see if that hair was real or not. You know, I was so angry that within a so-called safe space that someone would have the temerity to do that in what I thought was a safe space. And I was really angry and annoyed at that. Now, that has never happened again. But the LGB community, a, a lot of LGB people... I don't think they understand the tea, and I don't think some of them, I'm a small minority, want to even try and understand it. I think some in the gay community 
and I thought this for a long time, are very, very selfish. As long as they're in their little bubble and they're gay and they're happy and nobody's interfering with them, they can be very, very selfish. And and that's where I think the, the, the gay community need to look out. Not all small minority, but they need to look out for the wider population within the umbrella and they need to start being a little bit more, more mature. That's where I'm coming from, looking at what I see, you know. I couldn't agree more. And I think that the LGB community and and I would sort of think like the G community in this, I think there's a sense of ownership over queer spaces that gay men, I would say, have developed. And I think that there's a need to ensure that spaces feel open to all members of the LGBT community so that you are, whoever you are walking into a place, you know that. Because I'm sure that you're a self-assured enough person at this stage that that probably wouldn't have impacted you walking into other bars or other places. But a different person who was less sure of themselves, having that experience, it may have entirely undermined their entire journey and created a fear of entering spaces that are supposed to be safe for them. Well, I can empathise with that because the Bears had their weekend a few years back and there was some events around the panty bar. And I walked into the panty bar on, I think it was a Sunday night, and you could smell the testosterone running down the walls. There wasn't a female of any description in the place. Uh, it was all men. And neither of us that night, we were the only two female in the place. Neither of us felt particularly comfortable. Um, that was just by accident. I mean, it wasn't design or anything else. Um, it was just the way it happened. And it, it, it was upsetting that night to see it. And we, we, we didn't really enjoy that Saturday night. And I, I suppose then, in reality, I think the best way that the LGB community can make itself more inclusive of the T community is to make the spaces more inclusive. And I think that will benefit everyone across the, the spectrum because if people are being more friendly and inclusive and, and making space for people, then anyone will feel more free to be themselves in those spaces. I think that's right. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the more inclusive, it's like a business. The more inclusive the business is, the better the business does. And it's exactly the social setting as well. What are your hopes for the future? I suppose you've you've had a disrupted um, experience getting to discover who you are and now you finally are, I suppose, um, or seem to be, to be very solid and and know yourself and in a very good place. What are your, your hopes now into the future? You know, I'm semi-retired. I'm in a very good, very strong relationship. Um, I absolutely adore her. I hope we have many more years together. We have a nice home here and stuff. And, and well, look, at the end of the day, I'm quite happy in myself and I'm, I'm quite relaxed. And I don't mind doing interviews the like of this and things like that now and again. And if it helps other people to live their lives and, and, and do what they can, well, that's the side effect, you know. Louise said that doing the interview had given her an opportunity to reflect over her life. It's only now, at this later stage, that she's in a relationship in which she is 100% happy and has a partner who actually understands who she is. This is not something which she's had previously in her life. A lack of self-confidence had plagued her through her youth. Anxiety around her identity, aggravated by a challenging upbringing, had left her vulnerable to abusive and inappropriate partners. She sees the connection between the issues in her early life and accepting less than she deserved through much of her adult life, both personally and professionally. Now that she has found the courage to deal with all the pain of the past, she feels compelled to talk about it, to try and make a difference for other people who have been abused or written off or made to feel undeserving of fair treatment. 
That's why she says she so admires families that adore and love their trans children and are raising them to be good, well-rounded human beings who know their value. In recording the interviews for this series, it's remarkable to me that despite the breadth of experience and the difference of the lives lived by the eight individuals who participated, there's one area of consistency. Each and every one said the same thing, that the most important thing that we can do to become a more compassionate and inclusive society is listen to the stories of those who've experienced marginalisation and face discrimination. So thank you for listening to this episode of Invisible Threads. For more information about LGBT Ireland, the National Support Service for LGBTQ people and the work which we do for all Older members of the LGBTQ community, or to donate to help us continue our work, please visit lgbt.ie. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode and need to talk, LGBT Ireland operate the National LGBT Helpline, which is available on 1890 929 539. We have also included details of other organisations that offer advice, support, and information in the show notes. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. This project has received funding from the Government of Ireland's Slauncher Care Integration Fund 2019.